Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns. And this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. We've aimed this podcast at white Christians who, like me, are responding to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We welcome and appreciate feedback from all listeners, especially those who are not white or Christian. Let us know how we're doing. And we also acknowledge that as white Christians, we have our own work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. The good news is that this is powerfully healing work for ourselves as much as for anyone else. Truly, none of us is free if any of us is chained. And our liberation is profoundly interconnected with the liberation of people of color and others who have been systematically targeted for oppression. This Lent, the theme we are exploring is spiritual signposts in the wilderness. If we recognize that we are in the wilderness, in uncharted territory, moving from captivity toward an unknown future, How might the scriptures point us toward new ways of doing this work to end white supremacy, new ways of inviting others into the work, and new ways of imagining what the work is in the deepest sense? Signposts in the wilderness. I've been thinking about how, for me, signposts have often come in the form of other people, people who have shown up in my life at just the right moment and who, just by who they are and how they move, have shown me the direction I want to grow in. I wonder, who are the spiritual signpost people for you? For myself, I think of Lori Skiba, a white co-worker I had many years ago at a time when I was virulently allergic to Christianity. Lori has this quiet way of living her faith, never preachy, but somehow just visibly grounded and kind. And it made me curious about how she did that. I think of Reverend Lenise Pinkard, who would become a powerful mentor for me, but who first impressed me when I was working as her assistant. And we'd be walking down the street, and she'd stop and acknowledge every person who spoke to us, whether they were just saying hello or asking for change or whatever, She even spoke kindly and honestly to the binder people. Do you have the binder people where you are? The people who position themselves on busy sidewalks to fundraise for various usually national groups, Amnesty International or the Human Rights Campaign or the like. People who are recognizable by their matching t-shirts and big fat binders full of fundraising information. I do most of my giving locally and a lot of it to individuals, and I hate saying no to people. So my instinct is to avoid or ignore the binder people. But Lenise was so brilliant at giving each person some kind of acknowledgement, a blessing, a moment of being seen as a full person, without then having to stay and listen to a long fundraising spiel, which is what I was trying to avoid. Lenise is also a Black woman, and in so many ways, and with that same patience, 
she opened my eyes to anti-Black racism. Such a life-changing mentorship signpost. I think of Suhyun Han, my first roommate in Oakland, who was and is a fierce and kind truth teller, who showed me that conflict can be generative and just. And she also helped me broaden my anti-racist analysis beyond the borders of the United States and beyond a black-white binary. Powerful relational signposts. It has been getting to know beautiful people, really, that has changed me, changed my life, and oriented me toward dismantling white supremacy. These people and others have ushered me into the loving anti-racist community that is now my home. They each had something I admired and wanted, not just to emulate, but to become. In my 12-step recovery program, we talk about growing through attraction, not promotion. And sometimes I wonder whether there is a similar axiom for organizing, if attraction works better than promotion. But we'll explore that more as we dive into this week's scripture. scripture for this week was intended as a signpost, as all Paul's letters were, in this case to a community that is threatening to fracture and schism. The church Paul had planted at Corinth some years before was not holding together well. If you have been part of any organization for more than a year or so, you can probably imagine the scene. Disagreements have arisen about how to carry out the mission and even about what that mission is supposed to be. Egos have gotten involved and people are taking sides. And although the text doesn't say this exactly, my guess is that members are falling away and recruitment is faltering. Into that hot mess, Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians. Before we jump in, though, I want to acknowledge that this passage, from the standpoint of 21st century Christianity, can be read as critical of Jewish people in particular, as well as of Gentiles. In order to avoid the anti-Semitism that is so rampant in our contemporary reading of the New Testament, we have to remember that there were no Christians when this was written in the year 50 that this is not a call for Christians to do better than Jews or a declaration that they were or are, that Paul himself was Jewish, a Pharisee, in fact, and that Paul was, I think, including himself as a teacher of the law in the reminder he's offering here. I think that's really important and maybe the best we can do to critique our own communities, not someone else's. And for white Christians, that means white Christianity— and to do it without letting ourselves off the hook. We are a part of everything we indict. We don't get to scapegoat anyone else or anyone else's culture for the culture we participate in making and reinforcing. Paul is really targeting Greek ways of thinking here, and the ways to which the Corinthians, both Jews and Gentiles, have assimilated to it. So with that said, let's look at the scripture. 
This is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now you might wonder, at first hearing, as I did, what does all this about the crucifixion have to do with organizing? What does it have to do with the divisions in Corinth and their faltering movement? I got some answers to that question from a really great piece by Alexandra R. Brown. And what she says is that this section of the letter is apocalyptic. That is, it is meant to reveal something. And that something, if you can get a glimpse of it, is so powerful, so shocking, and so beautiful that people are jolted out of their workaday consciousness and into something new something more like awe and wonder. See, what Paul is saying here is that on the one hand, from a sort of common sense, everyday point of view, the notion of a crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. It's impossible because, see, a Messiah is supposed to be triumphant. A Messiah is supposed to be a winner, not a loser. A Messiah is supposed to make us great again. So this Christ crucified message makes no sense. It is ridiculous across the board to Gentile and Jew alike, even if maybe for different reasons. It is ludicrous, this idea that utter defeat, humiliation, and shame in the eyes of the world could be any kind of answer to injustice. And yet, Paul says, it is the power of God the wisdom of God. That is the gospel message on which the Corinth chapter of this new movement is founded, and all the other chapters too. Because if you look at it through another lens, if you kind of close one eye and squint a little bit, what you see is such overwhelming love. God, the source of everything, the creator of the entire universe, universe, had so identified with the rejected and humiliated people of this world, including the rejected and humiliated parts of ourselves, that God was willing to be tortured and die for us. God found us, even at our most abject, literally to die for. 
Put another way, Jesus, as God's emissary, was so filled with the Spirit, so awake to the fundamentally generous and self-giving nature of God's creation, and so unwilling to take on the crucifying ways of the human world, even to fight for a better one, that he would die first, and die in the most humiliating way possible. And by going through that humiliation, by taking it on, Jesus defeated all the powers of humiliation and brutality and death. The cross sets us free from all of that if we are willing to join the movement, to follow, to identify like Jesus with the rejected and humiliated ones of this world. In doing that, we are set free. We have nothing left to lose. That is the gospel message in a nutshell, the gospel of Paul and the gospel passed down to us. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful that it stopped you in your tracks? Have you ever witnessed a love so strong that it left you speechless? I think that's what Paul's trying to do here. Paul is trying to knock the Corinthians, rhetorically, out of their conformity to a Greek culture of honor and shame the striving for honor and the avoidance of shame. At root, that is what creates the divisions. Everyone is competing for honor and striving to climb up a hierarchy away from humiliation and shame. I imagine the Corinthians standing up and giving grand speeches all at one time, competing to be heard above the others, to sound smart, to be found wise, to show all the things that they know. And then here comes Paul. With his letter, he walks into the room and he basically yells, Christ crucified! It's like yelling, you are all so beloved, at the top of your lungs. Nothing else, it would shut people up for a minute. The shock of it. I saw something equivalent to that here back in January. Remember the week before the inauguration? How everyone was on edge, how it felt like we were all at each other's throats as we braced ourselves for we didn't know what, violence, horror. Well, that week, a banner went up on a freeway overpass near where I live. That in itself is not unusual. We tend to use the freeway overpasses as free social justice billboards all the time. But this banner was different. It said simply, how could I not adore you? How could I not adore you? And it worked in the way Paul's words were designed to work. It kind of scrambled my mind for a minute, made me forget my fearful resentments of Trump supporters and everyone else. And when I recovered, I was like, wow, yes, that is exactly the message we all need right now. This land we call the United States is such a loveless place. Back in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, Alice Walker wrote an editorial called, What Our Country Desperately Needs is a Leader Who Loves Us. She was hoping Obama would be that leader. We can argue about whether or not he was. But I think Walker was right that we suffer in this country from lovelessness and from leaders who put their own aggrandizement ahead of care for the people. We suffer from lovelessness, 
and it's highly contagious. Most of us have caught it. And so we also compete better than we care. And so that banner with its simple message, how could I not adore you? It brought tears to my eyes. Oh yes, love. That's what we're called to. And I guess this feels to me like a kind of signpost. How do we place gospel love? How do we put universal belovedness at the center of our organizing campaigns? of how we put belovedness at the center of our organizing campaigns is that we ourselves need to be steeped in it. We need to be so grounded in our own belovedness that we are no longer subject to the modern-day American version of the honor-shame codes, which is, oh, I don't know, the logic of white supremacy? See, white supremacy is rooted in the assumption that some people are better than other people, and that we ought to be trying to be one of the better ones. I don't know about you, but I was thoroughly socialized into that notion. It wasn't framed as being better than people of color, not at all. But I was encouraged from early on to try to prove that I am one of the smart ones, that I know more, that I'm more capable, more refined, and more moral, and just plain better than most people. And to do all that in a more subtle way, too, so that people know it, but don't think I'm arrogant or showy. In fact, some of us who are women or non-binary or queer or raised poor or BIPOC have been told we need to work even harder to demonstrate these things. Because one thing is certain, there is a pecking order, and you don't want to be on the bottom of it. And if you aren't a white man, you've already slipped a few notches. This is the logic that keeps our systems of oppression in place, because no matter how far I have slipped down the scale, at least I'm not like those people. And we know, right, that all this striving and besting and peacocking ultimately serves the people in power. It's part of a divide-and-conquer strategy that keeps us competing with each other, instead of building solidarity and demanding that they stop exploiting us all, and join us in creating a world that works for everyone. I know that I am tempted into this kind of separation and supremacy, even in my organizing work. There's something in me that really wants to be right, and for others who don't agree with me to be wrong. And honestly, not just to be wrong, but to be shown to be wrong, to be publicly embarrassed in that way, as if that somehow makes me better or safer or something. If you listen to our special Ash Wednesday episode, I think of it as our confessional episode, you know that Anne Dunlap, Margaret Ernst, and I had a great conversation about how hard it is for us to talk to white Christians who we feel harmed by, whether that harm comes from elitism or homophobia or something else. We talked about how our hurts make us want to armor up in those environments, come out with guns blazing, 
and how utterly ineffective that is. I can just imagine Paul walking in as I'm lecturing, for example, my white family members about white supremacy, and he just shouts out, Christ crucified, in an effort to catapult me out of my habituated self-righteousness and fearful separation from those who've hurt me and people I love, catapult me into something else. Christ crucified, a fierce and uncompromising love that risks humiliation in order to be in solidarity with those who have been humiliated. To those of us who are being saved, that is the power of God, the weakness of God that is greater than any human strength. Christ crucified, who gives the lie to the Greek honor-shame system for the Corinthians and to white supremacy culture for us, because neither of them lead to liberation. What does it mean to be called to bear witness to that kind of love? We are called to something else entirely, something that places at the center of our awareness this nearly unfathomable love, the love that God has for us, the lengths to which God is willing to go in order to be with us, even when we aren't yet willing, even when we respond with the most brutal violence imaginable. In the face of this, where is the wise person? Where is the debater of this age? What can we even say in the face of that kind of love? It silences all our best ideas. It's shocking. As Reverend Lenise Pinkard says all the time, God is a scandalous lover. And if we can stay with that, with that scandalous love, stay with the knowledge that we are beloved and have nothing left to prove, I think it might make something else possible for our organizing of other white Christians. This could look any number of ways. It could look like creating welcoming spaces for those who are just starting to wake up to the realities of white supremacy. Spaces that are free from jargon and virtue signaling and call-outs. I find myself wondering, what would it be like to sit with white people long enough and with enough acceptance that the pain starts to emerge. The pain that I truly believe every white person in this meat grinder of a country feels deep down about what has been done in our names. What kind of shocking love would it take for white men to get in touch with how white supremacy and patriarchy have harmed them? I don't mean to suggest that it's anyone's job or duty to extend that kind of love, but I wonder. And I'm grateful to Chris Crass and others with Surge who are starting this work through a project called Organizing White Men for Collective Liberation. Similarly, I sometimes fantasize about requiring every city council member or congressperson or any elected official 
to have an accountability team selected by their most marginalized constituents, whose role it would be to support those elected officials in uncovering how they really feel about the decisions and policies they are making, and then supporting them to move toward integrity. I also want to be clear that this kind of love is not necessarily nice. It can often be confrontational. God knows Jesus showed us that. (laughs) But it is rooted in solidarity, shared humanity, and shared responsibility rather than one-upsmanship. It calls for humility in the face of a bigger and wilder love. So that's one way this could look. Another way is to create the kind of beauty that breaks people open in the way that the cross might. Beauty like that freeway banner, how could I not adore you? A few years back, there was an action in Portland to stop an oil rigger from passing through on its way to the Arctic, where it would wreck destruction in that fragile ecosystem. Some activists from Greenpeace repelled off the St. John's Bridge and dangled for more than 24 hours in bright red and orange pods, each with a brightly colored banner streaming from behind it in the wind. At the same time, kayakers with the same color scheme blockaded the river. It was visually stunning and incredibly risky. And every time I hear, for God so loved the world, I think of those activists putting their bodies on the line for love of this tired and hurting world. We can create beauty that demonstrates that love. Art is powerful. Music is powerful. Poetry is powerful. I'm so glad that Surge is thinking about cultural organizing and how to mobilize artists in the creation of white anti-racist culture. What beauty can we create that does justice to the love we have received that makes that love more and more wildly available? How do we bear witness to that love that is unafraid of humiliation, repudiation, incarceration, and death? that in fact views those as ways to show solidarity with everyone else who has faced them. How do we do that? A few years back, white singer-songwriter Catherine Parent released a new version of the old hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This? And I think the song gets at it. It goes, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, that crowds of witnesses should face the riot squads for our souls, for our souls, should face the riot squads for our souls. When we were sinking deep, O my soul, O my soul, when we were sinking deep, O my soul, when we were sinking deep neath greed and cruelty, These prophets filled the streets for our souls, for our souls. These prophets filled the streets for our souls. There is a kind of love that disarms us. There is a beauty that breaks us open, even if it is also ugly. There is a power in weakness that brings sweet healing. And we are called to bear witness 
to receive it and take it in and be healed by it and then embody it with our own lives so that we become living signposts. We are called to become living alternatives to the loveless leadership in U.S. public life. We are called to create a movement so heartbreakingly beautiful that no one can resist it. I think we're being called here, friends, to make something beautiful, to let beauty and love be our signposts. Let's make the movement to end white supremacy irresistible. Amen. to action this week, I invite you to think about first the people who have been signposts to you on your anti-racist journey. Who pointed the way for you and what was it about them that made you want to follow? How can you become a signpost for others? Who can you support this week in taking another step on their own anti-racist journeys? Where can you bring kindness, humility, and acceptance. I also invite you to think about the actions you've seen or been a part of that conveyed the kind of beauty that broke you open, that maybe made you want to fall on your knees for the heartbreak and power. How can you be a part of creating that kind of beauty again? What does it mean for you to first receive the love that God has for you, and then to bear witness to it before others in a way that opens them up. Where is the fear of humiliation, interpersonal or systemic, holding you back? And what healing work can you do to release that fear? There are a couple of asks from movement organizations that I want to lift up as we close this week. The struggle led by Anishinaabe people against the Line 3 tar sands pipeline in Minnesota is really heating up this month, and leaders are asking supporters to target the banks that are funding the pipeline. And for those who are committed to following Indigenous leadership and are in a position to risk arrest, to come to Minnesota and stand with them. Black Lives Matter Grassroots and the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation are asking us to support the virus relief bill as it moves to the Senate in the coming week. The bill passed by the House would provide much-needed housing, food, and unemployment support for those communities who have been hit hardest by the pandemic. I'll put links to these efforts in the transcript so that you can take action. Finally, I want to ask you to help us make something beautiful here at Surge. We are doing what we can to build up a new world free of racism and white supremacy, and we need your help to do that. Every month, we split the donations with another organization doing powerful work. And this month, that organization is Soul Force, our partners in sabotaging white Christian supremacy through radical analysis, spiritual healing, and direct action. You can donate at bit.ly backslash surge sf 
I'll put the link to that in the transcript and on our podcast page. Let's make something scandalous, loving, and beautiful together, friends. That's the end of today's episode. You're going to want to stay tuned for next week's, though, which is going to be a rich conversation among several of our contributors taking on the lectionary scriptures for March 14th, looking for those spiritual signposts in the wilderness. I know they'll bring something powerful. Together, we are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by that name in this podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Matt Reno. Matt, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Yeah.